Last week, we looked at five directives that Peter gives for our response to this unjust suffering that will inevitably come into our lives if we truly live intentionally for the glory of God as exiles in this world. And this week, we're going to finish the letter by looking at Peter's closing arguments. He concludes this letter by summarizing everything he has laid out in the previous four chapters. So I know your note-taking guides look a little ominous or overwhelming this morning, but I promise we'll work through it fairly quickly. At, at least that's the plan. But at this point, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter, and as you turn there, I'm going to ask that you please stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read together 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1 and going all the way to the end. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you have revealed yourself in your word. As we were looking, even in Sunday school this morning, about just the continuity of scripture of how you reveal yourself in Genesis, how you reveal yourself in Revelation, and how you do not change from beginning to end. How your plan of redemption that began in Genesis finds its fulfillment in Revelation, and that thread of redemption is woven throughout your word. Lord, we thank you for this message that you've given us, this, this letter from Peter to this church. And Lord, we thank you just, again, knowing who you are and the fact that you do not change, not only throughout Scripture, but even to today. That the God we serve today is the same God, is the God of the New Testament, is the God of the Old Testament, is the God from, the, from before the beginning of time. Lord, we know that your promises are sure. We know that, that you are love. We know that you are just. And Lord, help us to not just listen to the words this morning, not just look at the words or read the words, but that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, that it would 
change us and mold us into your image, that we can take this and put it into practice in our lives as we walk out of this place this morning. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all the ways that you have blessed us so far above and beyond what we deserve. We thank you for the grace and mercy that you have shown us despite who we are, despite what we've done. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength, as Peter says, to stand firm on your word with our eyes fixed on you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, before we jump into Peter's concluding remarks here, I want us to rewind briefly to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. We're not going to read that. We covered that a couple weeks ago. But in this passage, Peter outlined how we are to function in the church, what our spiritual duties are to one another in light of the fact that we are living in the final age of this sinful world. We are to pray. We are to love. We are to be hospitable. We are to serve unselfishly. And we are to reflect God's glory in everything we say and do. We all struggle each and every day to live these out in community as we should. And oftentimes we face, or in, in the face of suffering or persecution, or sometimes just due, due to distraction, sometimes we lose sight of the goal and we neglect to live intentionally for God's glory. Or we falter rather than stand firm in our faith. And this is why God, the chief shepherd here, gifted some to be under-shepherds, referred to in the New Testament as pastor or elder or overseer. These terms are, are interchangeable. So we're going to use the term elder today as Peter does. Just understand what we are referring to here. These men are to serve Christ by leading and caring for an appointed portion of his flock of followers to help spur them on to good works to grow in their faith, to encourage them when they struggle, to strengthen their resolve to stand firm, to explain and to teach God's Word to them, and to constantly direct them back to the God whom they serve. At this point, his, his case has been made, and chapter 5 really serves as a conclusion of sorts that draws all this letter together in a closing summary. Think of and in a courtroom setting, an attorney's closing argument, after all the evidence has been presented, the attorney gets up and presents his closing argument, which is his, his plea or his case in light of all the evidence, where he weaves it all together. This is what Peter is doing here. And Peter begins his closing arguments by addressing these church elders specifically with encouragement to be faithful to their calling. So look here at verse 1. To the elders, he writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter here, right off the bat, Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder. He understands what he is about to say to them because he's been there. He is there. He is a leader. He's an elder in the Jerusalem church. So he understands the office to which he is speaking. Furthermore, he identifies with them as witnesses of Christ's suffering. Not only was he a personal witness of Christ when he suffered in, in his humanity, but he's also a fellow witness with them of the suffering of Christ on their behalf to the world, as is referred to in Acts 1.8. In Acts 1.8, Luke writes, "...but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." 
So Peter is a witness. He's a fellow witness with them to the truth of the gospel. He is an elder, as are the leaders of this church to whom he is writing, as are the leaders in the church today, and as such, he shares the same calling. He's not appealing to them as if he is greater than them, but rather one of them. Not a superior, but a fellow partaker of God's glory, soon to be revealed in the end of all things. And as such, he doesn't offer new teaching to them, but rather offers encouragement to them to stand firm in their calling and to be faithful leaders. This same encouragement goes for today's church leaders as well. It's tempting for you in the audience today to think that this doesn't apply to you since you are not a pastor. But this encouragement for elders, A, can serve as encouragement in some sense for other areas of church leadership. But even more importantly, B, it helps you to understand better what our calling and duties as a pastor are. Oftentimes, people tend to, when we don't understand the, the biblical calling of a pastor, people tend to either place expectations on pastors that God does not place, or to get angry or resent when pastors actually faithfully fulfill their role if it's uncomfortable for them. After his encouragement to leaders, however, he will then address others in the church in light of what the elders are to be doing. So elders, you are to be doing this, and then he's going to move from there and say, because they're doing this, now here's your job. So it is relevant, it is important, it is something that we all need to learn. This is not just for pastors or elders in the church. For church leaders, this is great encouragement that we too need to keep our eyes on Christ and not only live intentionally for God's glory, but lead intentionally for God's glory and not only to stand firm against the world, but to lead and to encourage the rest of the body to do so as well. The first reminder or encouragement that he gives to elders in the church is to lead actively. Lead actively. Look at... Verse 2, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So first and foremost here we see that the church is God's. I do not have my own flock. It is not my church. You are not my people. This is God's flock. This is God's church. This is God's people. And the authority of an elder is derived from God's word. It's not because the pastor said it, it's because the pastor said the Bible said it. The, because the pastor said this is what God says. That's where our authority comes from. I and the other elders here at Sardis have been given the responsibility to lead this local body of God's people into God's will and for God's glory and according to God's word. We serve God here by using our gifts to lead you to follow Him. But this is not a passive position. We cannot give in to the temptation to just go through the motions of weekly teaching and weekly ministry as if it's just any other job. We can't just go through the motions and let the focus be on our lives outside the church meeting. As pastors, we don't get to clock out, if that makes sense. But we are to be leading actively in what we're doing. And shepherding here is a great analogy Shepherds did not just sit and watch over their sheep as they fend for themselves. That was not the shepherd's job. That was not being a shepherd. Shepherds got off the fence and they led the sheep 
to good grazing, and then they led the sheep to water, and they stood watchful and ready to defend the sheep from thieves or predators. And they did not just watch, they exercised oversight in the lives of the sheep, leading and directing them into what was best for them, so that the sheep could prosper and grow and be healthy. And if you've ever dealt with animals, not all animals want to follow. Sometimes it takes a little more force from the shepherd, but in the same way, elders are to follow the example of the chief, chief shepherd, God, and care for his people as God does. We are to lead God's people into truth and keep them moving toward God and caring for their needs, all the while being watchful and prepared to defend from false teaching and from the incursion of sin. And he clarifies this by saying, not under compulsion, but willingly. We've all gone to a job and done what we were supposed to do because we had to. And many times we did a good job. I know I have done this, especially when I was teaching high school. There were many days when I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to be there. I did not feel like teaching. I didn't feel like dealing with the kids. But I got up and I showed up and I prepared and I delivered my lesson and I hid my lack of desire to be there from everyone. And I feel like I did a pretty good job, but my heart was not in it. I didn't really want to be there and we can all relate to that. Elders here, Peter encourages them, we are not to have that attitude. We are to resist the temptation to just go through the motions as if it were any other job to pay the bills but rather we are to be zealous for the people of God because we love them and care for them as God loves and cares for them. An elder is to be a willing leader and a willing servant. Now that doesn't mean it's easy because anyone who's ever been in a leadership position in ministry knows it is extremely difficult. It is anything but easy. However, our joy is not grounded in the people or the success of the institution. Our joy as leaders is found in the fact that this is what God would have us to do. That is where we have to stand. Many times an elder's suffering comes from, or a persecution even, comes from both outside and from within the church. But just like Peter has already said, we too are to find joy in being faithfully obedient to our calling, regardless of what anybody says, regardless of what anybody does, Regardless of our circumstances, we are to be faithful to our calling, knowing that in this we serve God ultimately, even as we are serving God's people temporarily. The encouragement here to elders is to be faithfully obedient to the calling God has given us to shepherd and to exercise oversight of the local church in whichever context God has placed us, using the gifts God has given us to serve Him by loving His people, which leads right into the next encouragement, and that is we are to lead out of love. Lead out of love. He says in the, the latter part of that verse, verse 2 there, he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. An elder is to shepherd the local church while being motivated by love. 
We are to be eager to serve and lead because we love the Lord and we love God's people. That is to be our motivation for leadership rather than any selfish gain, anything that we might get out of it. Now, this does not mean that elders should not be paid or do not deserve to be compensated. Because look at what Paul says. Again, we have to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. So look at what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. It's good for an elder to be compensated so that he can devote his time to study and teaching and preaching the Word of God. For the church, this is a way of showing that you honor and value the time that he is spending in serving and leading you, as well as how much value you place on hearing the Word of God preached. But there's a difference between being honored by the church and taking advantage of the church. Elders should not seek to live extravagantly off of the people of God, nor should compensation or benefits or perks or reputation or status or power or any form of selfish gain be a motivation for shepherding God's people, be a motivation for accepting or pursuing a leadership position. An elder should be eager to serve out of a heart's desire, motivated, motivated first and foremost by love for God and by extension love for God's people rather than love of self or selfish gain. And this is, this is a natural human temptation against which we as leaders must guard our hearts. And Peter is encouraging these elders to examine their motivations. Take a step back and look at the motivation of your heart and remember what your true motivation should be. Remember who it is that you really serve and remember what is at stake. Too often as leaders we forget that this is no ordinary job. But as leaders... People follow us. People follow leaders. That's what's at stake, which is where Peter goes next. The third encouragement that Peter gives to the elders is to lead by example. Lead by example. Look at verses 3 and 4. 1 Peter 5, verse 3. He says, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Elders are not to have this air of superiority, like we call the shots and everyone is just expected to do what we say. Rather, elders are to lead by example. They are to live in such a way as to say, follow me as I follow God. Just as Peter is not telling these elders to do things that he himself is not doing. Remember, he says, I am a fellow elder. I am one of you. He is not asking them or telling them to do something that he is not practicing himself. Elders are to live exemplary lives to God's people. We are to, in other words, practice what we preach. It's easy to preach to others about the cost of discipleship. It's easy to preach to others about how to face suffering and persecution as a Christ follower. It's easy to preach to others about submitting to God's will or following Him where He leads. It's easy to preach to others about living intentionally for God's glory or stewarding the resources you have been loaned for God's glory or leveraging your life for God's glory. Leveraging your life for the kingdom of God. 
no matter the cost. Those things are easy to preach to other people, but the real weight of an elder's responsibility comes in knowing that my calling as an elder is not only to teach these things, but to lead in them by living them out in my life. How can I stand before you and exhort you to stand firm in your faith if I'm not willing to stand firm in mine? How can I stand before you and encourage you that the gospel is far superior to any earthly cost if I'm not ready and willing to sacrifice for the gospel in my own life? I'm not perfect and I never will be, but how can I stand here and tell you to fight the sin in your life all the while ignoring or downplaying sin in mine? How can I challenge you to live intentionally for the gospel, to renounce your claim of ownership, any claim of ownership that you have over anything and everything in this life and sign it over to God if I'm not actively doing the same thing in my life? As an elder, one of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible is Paul's words to the Corinthians after challenging them on their sinful, self-indulgent lifestyles. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Paul looks at them and says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As leaders, that is our calling. And that is a sobering reminder that it's not do as I say, it's do as I do. Be imitators of me. Follow me as I follow Christ. You want to know how to do that? Let's do it together. Follow me. As elders, that is our calling. Lead by example. We are not allowed to say, do as I say, not as I do. If your parents have ever told you that before, as an elder in the church, we're not, that, that is a cop-out that we are not given. Again, I'm not going to be perfect, and neither is any other leader here at Sardis or anywhere else for that matter. Neither was Paul, and neither was Peter. Perfection in leadership is not the point. Rather, Peter's words are meant to be encouraging here. Remember your calling. Obey Christ in that calling out of love, and remember that people are watching you to see how you practically live this out. However... Along with that is the promised reward of an unfading crown of glory. As elders, we are to remember that we serve at the pleasure of the chief shepherd, and we have his instructions and his standards here for us, and no matter what we may face in this life, ultimately it is to him that we give account. The encouragement is to remain faithful and obedient, knowing that God has promised to reward those who lead well to the end. When leading well is hard, or when it leads to persecution or suffering, we need to be reminded of the inheritance awaiting us at the end and keep our eyes fixed on the prize. Again, the encouragement from Peter to the elders is stand firm. Don't be moved by the culture. Don't compromise to society. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in God's word. No matter the circumstances, because there is a reward awaiting you in heaven. He then shifts gears and moves from encouraging the elders in the church to encouraging young people in the church. Look at his instructions to young people in the beginning of verse 5. He says, follow the elders. Follow the elders. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to... To the elders, you who are younger, 
be subject to the elders. There is some controversy here about whether the younger are new believers or just young people in general. And that word, as it's translated, could be used either way. And it is used both ways. But either way, the idea here is addressing those who have a tendency to rebel against authority. If he uses the word elder to refer to leaders, then he uses the word younger to refer to people who have a tendency to rebel against that leadership. He's drawing a contrast here. But again, this is nothing new. As Peter has already outlined our response to authority both within and outside the church earlier in this letter. We've gone through, he went through explicitly, here's how we are to submit to authority in light of our faith. So regardless of your age, these are words that we all need to take note of. As the elders are called to lead God's people, God's people are called to follow the leadership of the elders. Now, sometimes you may disagree with the elders' decisions. Sometimes you might not fully understand something, or you might have a difference of opinion or a difference of preference for one thing over another. But your calling given by God, again, this is your calling given by God, is to submit to the church leadership and to support them regardless. You are not to follow them into sin if they're being unfaithful leaders, but that is the exception rather than the rule. If elders are under shepherds, follow, follow the logic here. If elders are under shepherds, whose authority is granted to them by God, and, who's give, and who are given the task of oversight and leadership of the church by God, then to rebel against their leadership is to rebel against God's leadership. Now this does not mean that you can't question things, that you can't hold leaders accountable to fulfill our role faithfully, nor does it mean that, you will, that there will never be tension or disagreement between you and the elders of your church. But your heart's desire, again, that's what Peter's getting at, your heart's desire in your default position must be to ultimately submit to leadership of the elders that God has placed in leadership in your church, if at all possible. So my default position is not, well, can I not follow them? We tend to, we, that's, the, that's, the, the, that's where we tend to go. I don't like this, and so I don't want to do this, and so how can I justify not doing it? Our default position is, should, our default position should be, I don't agree with this, I don't like this, so let me go to the Bible, let me go to the elders and see how can I, what do I need to do, how can I still submit to this? That needs to be our default position. How can I get behind this? How can I support this? Help me understand so that I can do this. That needs to be our heart's desire. Again, that doesn't mean we follow unfaithful leaders, but our desire should be to follow them rather than to push back and rebel against everything or anything that we do not like. This is hard. And we naturally don't like to be told what to do. Nobody likes to be told what to do, especially if we disagree with the decision that has been made. If we don't like to... If, if, if we don't agree, we don't like to submit if we think we are right and we know better. That's just the truth of the matter, and we can all relate to that. If I think I'm right, and I think my idea is better than your idea, then my natural tendency is I'm not going to do what you want to do. We tend to want to defend our own ideas, which is why Peter then turns and addresses the entire audience, the entire audience next. Look at what he says, and his next words are, Be humble. Be humble. 
The, the rest of verse 5 there, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Be humble. Here he quotes, this is a quote here from Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3, 34 says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Submitting to church leadership requires humility. Submitting to someone who has a different idea than you, someone who, has, who prefers something over what you prefer, requires us to be humble. Following someone who does things different than you or that you think you know better than requires humility. Humility says, I understand that God has placed them in authority, so I will speak my peace and give my opinion, but if their decision does not contradict God's word, then I will submit to it willingly and gladly because they are the ones tasked by God to lead. That is what you are called to do. That's, that should be our default attitude. It's our pride that bristles at that. And Satan doesn't have to work very hard at all to divide God's people when they are marked by pride rather than humility. Here, Peter begins a quick summary of many of the themes of this letter as, as he nears the end. And humility is one of them. It's one we've already looked at. He has exhorted his readers or his hearers, to be humble on more than one occasion in the first four chapters. So we're going to try to run through these fairly quickly. He says, We are all to be humble and to seek to faithfully and obediently carry out our duties as Christ followers because ultimately it is God we serve and God is sovereign over all the earth. He is in control of our circumstances. He is in control of, wor- control of world affairs. No persecution comes to us that catches Him unaware, and He's coming back soon. He loved us because He chose to love us, not because we were lovable, not because we did anything to earn His affection. There was no inherent good in us, but we are what we are because Christ humbled Himself to take on human form, live the perfection that we could never live, and died to pay the penalty of our sin so that we might inherit His righteousness in place of our sin. We are redeemed because of God, not in any way because of us. So there is no room for pride in God's people. There's no room. In the end, those who stand firm and are faithful to Him will receive their inheritance, which is eternal salvation from the sin that plagues us and this world. Then, because of who God is, we are to trust God. Trust God. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Persecution and suffering come with following Christ. When you ally yourself with God, you make yourself an enemy of the world. We must all choose sides. We all choose sides. When trouble comes, when, when the cost of following Jesus in this life begins to rise, we can trust that God is in control. We can trust that He cares for us as His children, that His promises are true, and that our inheritance in Him is secure. Our promised redemption is always as good as done. 
We can take our worries and our cares and our anxieties, our fear of this life, and turn them over to Him, trusting that His will is better than our will, and that any suffering we face in this life will pale in comparison to our promised inheritance. Trust and stand firm in Him. But also, not only are we to be humble and are we to trust God, but we're also to be aware. We are not to go through life with blinders on to what's going on in the world around us. Again, Peter uses this phrase over and over and over throughout these first four chapters. He says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Again, we see this theme of being alert, being sober-minded. Pay attention. We cannot afford to go through life with blinders on and our heads down, just going through the motions of life. Get up, go to work, come home, hang out for a little while, watch TV, go to bed, and get up, rent, uh, lather, rinse, repeat the next day. All right? That... That's not an option for us. We are to be aware. We are to be sober-minded. Because just going through the motions of life, just going through the routine of life, that's what Satan wants. He wins if he can distract God's people with the cares and the pleasures of the world. We cannot serve both God and the world. We cannot serve both God and ourselves. Everything we do needs to be intentional. We are to live intentionally for the glory of God. We are to reflect His glory to a lost and dying world around us through our lives and through our words. And the need for that is great because Christ's coming is imminent. There there should be some motivation there. There should be a sense of urgency among God's people that this is important. To make the most, to make the best use of every moment that we're given. To take the life that we've been given and to use it to its fullest for the glory of God. There should be a sense of urgency there to spread the gospel anywhere and everywhere and at every opportunity that we are given. And not only are we to be alert and aware, but we're also to stand firm. And you've probably heard me say this a hundred times throughout this series, because that's really, if you want to boil it down to two-word summary of what is First Peter, that's, and that's why we titled, that's why I titled this series "Stand Firm," because that's really what he gets at. That's his number one encouragement throughout this letter to whoever it is, to the elders, to the young people, to everybody: is stand firm. If you are a follower of Christ, persecution will come. Be ready, pay attention, and stand firm. Hold fast to the truth. Verse 9, he says, resist him, him being the devil. In verse 8, your adversary. Resist him, how? Firm in your faith. Holding tightly to the truth of God's word. We resist the temptations and distractions and advances of Satan by staying faithful to what God has called us to do. By standing firm in our faith and seeking to be obedient to God's word at every turn, no matter the cost. In the face of persecution and suffering for the sake of following Christ, do not compromise with the world. Do not compromise God's word, but stand firm. 
And as you take a stand, as you draw that line in the sand, I'm, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes throughout all of world history as, as having taught history and studied history, both American history and church history, etc., is by Martin Luther. And when he was forced to recant, they, they told him, they said, listen, you are, they, they had him on trial and they said, take it back. You have proclaimed that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and you won't quit preaching it, so recant now or face the wrath of the emperor. And Martin Luther said, he held up his Bible and says, here I stand, I can do no other. I cannot be moved off of this. That's how we are to be. But as we take that stand, as we draw that line in the sand, remember that you're not alone. You're not alone when persecution comes, when suffering comes, when trials come. You are not alone. Look at what Peter says next. He says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is not unique to you. Suffering for Christ is not unique to you because suffering for Christ started with Christ. Suffering for following God started in Genesis. It's, been, it's always been that way for God's people and all God's people are in the same boat. If you seek to genuinely follow Christ, you will face persecution and suffering. So as you, when you get to that point, remember you are not alone. From Noah to Malachi and from the New Testament today, there is a long history of believers standing firm and facing the temporal consequences for such a stand. There has always been a remnant. We saw that this morning in my Sunday school class in Malachi. There's always been a remnant and there always will be. No matter how dark it gets, you are not alone. If you take a stand, if you remain faithful, if you choose to obey and not compromise, you will be in the minority, but you will not be alone. This is where the church comes in. This is why this community is so important. This is why the author of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves. This is why it's so important. Because it's easy if you forsake this gathering, it's easy to feel like you're alone. It's easy to feel like I'm the only one who's having to pay the price to follow Jesus. It's easy to get isolated. We are to encourage one another with these words, to help one another, to do this together. Suffering at the hands of the world always has and always will come with faithfulness to Christ. For even Jesus was persecuted, though he had never done anything wrong. So you're in good company. As you stand and face the hatred of the world, also remember to keep your eyes on the prize. Look at verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember, Jesus is coming back. We are not citizens of this world, but are exiles. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That's our inheritance. That's our prize. That's our goal. And this is not just Peter. Again, we've seen this theme throughout, and we, it was brought up, I think Michelle mentioned it in Sunday school this morning, about the continuity of Scripture and how because God doesn't change, God's Word doesn't change. And we see these threads that run all throughout the Bible. And every week, it seems like we see that when Peter 
encourages his readers when he, what he writes, we see that Paul writes similar things at different times to different places. And Jesus himself said the same thing at different times in different places. And this is the same, this is no different. It's not unique to Peter. Look at what Paul says to the church in Rome in Romans 8, 18. He says, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And again to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The author of Hebrews as well in chapter 12, verse 11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This life is temporary, and the end is near, so keep your eyes on Jesus and what He has called you to do. Count the cost of following Him, and remember that there is no earthly cost that is not worth paying when compared to the eternal salvation that is offered to those who are faithful. Keep your eyes on the prize, and do not move from your purpose. Embrace the hatred of the world by remembering that the world hates Christ's followers because they see Christ in us. And finally, look at how Peter concludes this letter. See, I told you we were going to make it all the way through. Look at his conclusion, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Again here we see reference to the fact that in standing firm you are not alone. His audience is not alone, and you today are not alone. Sylvanus, from from his audience's perspective, look at what he says here. Sylvanus is a trusted and faithful brother. So it's not just you. This was delivered by the hands of I trusted and faithful brother. Mark sends his greetings. She who is at Babylon is a reference to the church body in Rome. And you are to greet one another. So here this letter is addressed to a community of believers within and outside the local church. And the same is true of us today. Be bold and stand firm in the true grace of God that is salvation for all eternity. And that comes at the end of the road marked with suffering. And look at his his final word there. Peace to all believers. Peace to all believers. His final words are peace. The hope we have in Christ gives us peace that passes all all understanding in the face of any and all circumstances. In the words of R.C. Sproul, he says, Peace to... Peace to all who are in the Prince of Peace. Peace to all who have the inheritance of His peace. Amen. This is the message of 1 Peter. Be intentional in living for the glory of God. Find joy in the midst of suffering for identifying with Christ. Be faithful and obedient to God's Word and stand firm in the midst of a world that will hate you for following Him. That's the message for 1 Peter, and this is such a timely message for us in our context today. This church that Peter was writing to did not yet face systemic government-sanctioned persecution yet. It would come, but not at this point in time. 
They were not in danger of losing their lives for their faith yet. That day would come, but it hadn't when this was written. But they did face the daily cost of loss of public reputation, of being social outcasts, of being mocked and belittled and discriminated against for following Jesus, of being ostracized from society. That's what they faced in, at that moment. Is that not what we face today? Is that not what we are facing right now? But greater persecution for them was on the horizon. It was coming, and they could already see the signs of it. Is that not also true of us today? The cost is rising. It's time to put your faith into action. That sounds eerily similar to our modern context. Some 2,000 years later, These words of encouragement are for you and for me as well as it was for them. And we need to hear them. As Michelle and the praise team come up to lead us once again in worship, keep this encouragement in mind. Praise God for the hope that we have in Him. Lift up your voices to worship Him for His grace and His mercy and His love for us and for our sure inheritance in Him if we are His children. If you're not sure where you stand with God or you know you're not one of His, then take this time to reflect. Understand that the good news of salvation is freely offered to all. It's freely offered, but it will cost you everything in this life. If you want this peace, this redemption, if you want to follow Christ, then I would encourage you to find myself or Pastor Mark at the end of our time together this morning. We would love to set aside some time to walk you through what this looks like. As we get ready to enter into a time of worship, reflect on this encouragement as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for your word, for who you are, for the fact that you do not change. Lord, we don't know how much time we have left. We don't know how many days are left allotted for us here on this earth, but we know the time is ticking. We know that you're coming soon. Lord, I pray that you help us to live intentionally for your glory with a sense of urgency that we, would, that we would not shy away from the cost of following you, that we would willingly embrace the hatred of the world if it means the privilege of identifying with you. Lord, help us to follow you wherever you lead. Help us to seek your will above ours. Help us to stand firm in the midst of a world that is increasingly hostile to you. Lord, give us the strength and the courage and the boldness to live and to act and to speak and to spend intentionally for your glory. Help us at the end of our time on this earth to be found faithful to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.